Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. Before the episode truly starts, I'd just like to say that it was recorded about a year ago, which means it might sound slightly different to more recent episodes. But don't worry, it's just as fascinating. This week, we're going back over 200 years, where there were 200 different offences that you could hang for. Anything from chopping down a tree to stealing a sheep. Do you think that this put the people of Bristol off even minor crime? Not a bit. We had our very own wild bunch back here in the 1780s, and some of them went down fighting, just like the infamous highwayman from the village of Wooten Under Edge, north of Bristol. I'm talking about William Crewe. William had started down the path of crime by stealing from his very own family. First, it was his sister's piggy bank, but when his mother remarried after William's father died, he offered to go to badminton and air out the newlyweds' house. But when they arrived, they found that half the furniture was missing. One day, William met a maid on a farm. She had £20 saved and was waiting for the right man to come along. But, unfortunately for her, William arrived, and married her instead. Surprisingly, both money and husband left soon afterwards. William wasn't a man who was class conscious. He robbed everyone he met. But his burgling spree was rudely interrupted when a judge in Thornbury banished him twice. First to the West Indies, and then into the Navy. But, like a bad penny, he kept returning. To Wotton. But, said some, had a man not known for violence really robbed a woman in her seventies? Anne Fowles in Huntley, near Gloucester, who was supposedly badly beaten by a stick, or did they hang him simply because they were sick of chasing him? For in the end, it had taken a posse of fifty men to bring him to justice. Some 10,000 spectators attended the hanging, said the local newspaper, as William, aged just 39, stood on the gallows in 1786. As he died, it was reported there was a sudden burst of thunder. (laughs) 
There's apparently a local legend in Wooden Under Edge saying that the ghost of William Crewe haunts Westridge Wood. Apparently this local highwayman was reformed for a time by the famous evangelical preacher Roland Hill, who gave his name to a Sunday school and some almshouses in Wooden. The tale goes that William Crewe's treasure is supposedly buried in the wood and is jealously guarded by the ghost of the old ruffian. Interesting to note that William didn't stay converted for long, as he found that religion didn't fill his pockets with gold. So he went back to robbery. Word of the Week This week's Word of the Week is going to be slightly different. Here are some other terms that still mean highwayman. Footpad, highway rogue, outlaw, obviously, robber, St. Nicholas's clerk, knight of the road, and my favourite is land pirate. Those that drive on the A4 between Bristol and Bath might think that that road is a nightmare right now, but it's nothing compared with the dangers of the past. As Dick Turpin was holding up the York Road in the north, others were attacking the nobility and gentry travelling along the Bath Road. Even England's Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell was a victim. This reign of terror coincided with Bath being at the peak of fashionability when anyone who was anyone had to be seen there and Beau Nash was master of ceremonies. Author Jane Austen would have travelled the road as did Charles Dickens and it is thought he found the name Pickwick Papers while travelling through the village of that name. You would be forgiven for thinking it was just one road because actually there was three. It depended on the weather which one you took. If the lower road was flooded, he went over the hills, and this in turn would lead to several of the coaches overturning. After the English Civil War, several soldiers ended up making a living as highwaymen. In the late 17th century, on his way to the gallows, Captain Philip Stafford had a last drink at a tavern, telling the landlord he would pay for it on his way back. Captain James Hind, who had fought with Charles II, was hung, drawn and quartered for treason after being captured for highway robbery. Captain Zachary Howard, a former cavalier, held up Oliver Cromwell and was also accused of attacking the home of General Fairfax. Martin Yallop, who put together an exhibition at Caution Tourist and Heritage Centre with Elaine Arthurs, said highway robbery began with the first public stagecoaches in 1658 and as they began to carry mail in the 1700s, had to have more security escorts. The last highwaymen targeting the Bath Road were the Hannam and the Cock Road Gang. They committed crimes in the Brislington and Cainton area in the 1850s. Mr Yallop said they were far more violent and brutal than the romantic image. Tom Wilmot, who had trouble taking a woman's ring off, cut her finger off in the end. 
The road declined quite rapidly once the railway opened in 1841, and it stopped being a through road until the car arrived in the early 20th century. Picture, if you will, it was a Friday evening, about 10.30pm, the 17th of June, 1842, as Mr Francis Edwards, a solicitor from Bristol, was returning home from Westbury to Redland. It was a pleasant summer evening, and he was quite enjoying the peace of that time. Suddenly, he found himself surrounded by five men, armed with horse pistols. They robbed him of a purse, a gold watch and chain, and, well, anything else they took a fancy to. On the following Sunday, a bathman, who gave his name as George Smith, was arrested on suspicion of being involved in the robbery. When he was shown the handbill that listed the items stolen, he fainted clean away. And when he was searched, they found a large quantity of silver items, like spoons and forks. He was brought before the borough magistrates, and, not really being able to explain himself, was remanded for further examination. On the Thursday night, a wagoner of Stoke, about three miles from Bristol, was driving along in his wagon when he was stopped by the same gang. Two of the men stood in front of the horses so they couldn't go any further, while the others jumped into the wagon and proceeded to rifle through his pockets. Fortunately, the sound of an approaching vehicle scared them off. A Mrs Collard, the wife of a respectable farmer at Almondsbury, five miles north of Bristol, was returning home in her covered cart on Saturday night from the Bristol Market, accompanied by Mr Smith, a carpenter from Almondsbury, who was driving. Mr Smith also had his young son, and they were giving another young woman a ride back home. When they arrived near the first milestone, five men suddenly jumped out of the hedge. Two ran to the horse's head, a third pointed a pistol at them in the cart, and the other two, who were also armed with pistols, got into the cart and demanded their money or their lives. They then dragged Mrs Collard and Mr Smith out of the cart in the most violent manner, and having thrown them to the ground, proceeded to search their pockets. Once they were satisfied that they had everything they could steal, they then set about beating the poor couple around the heads and their faces with the ends of their pistol until they didn't move, being reduced to a state of total insensibility. Mr Smith's young son leapt from the cart when he saw his father being beaten. He fell to his knees and begged for mercy. They beat him too, but not as severely. Mrs Collard had her teeth beaten out with some very severe head wounds. Mr Smith was so beaten about the head that he had lain in state of perfect insensibility ever since and scarcely the slightest hope can be entertained for his recovery. On the same evening, two labouring men who were returning from market on the same road were stopped, robbed and beaten by the same five men. As the men made their slight resistance, some of the robbers were heard to cry out, Murder them! Murder them! One of the robbers, apparently named Pyrrhus, held the gun to the poor man's face and pulled the trigger. Luckily the gun misfired. 
They were then robbed of all their earnings and some groceries that they had purchased. The poor fellows were beaten about the head with the butt ends of the pistol and thrown into a ditch. The five robbers were described as follows. Three of them were short men wearing smock frocks with Jim Crow hats. The other two were dressed like navigators and have high black hats. In keeping with our theme this week, the book of the day is Gentlemen Rogues, Wicked Ladies. This book features such characters as Claude Duval, the epitome of gentlemanness, the infamous Catherine Ferrers, who was the inspiration for the film The Wicked Lady. Of course, you've got to have Dick Turpin in there, who's the most famous highwayman of all, as well as those who aren't so famous, like William Gordon, whose corpse was subjected to an experiment in reanimation. I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone who's been in touch with me. If you haven't and you'd like to, it's very easy. You can find me on Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK. Or alternatively, you can contact me via email using info at backtracker.co.uk. Our next highwayman comes from a bit further afield. He's a native of Cricklade, a small town between Swindon and Cirencester in Wiltshire. And he was one of the most notorious highwaymen who successfully pursued their nefarious operation in Wiltshire and elsewhere. By trade, William was a blacksmith and before taking to the road, worked with his brother in a smithy in Cricklade, where he was born. He was very suave and gentlemanly, and as a rule was polite to his female victims. He was fond of company, and was reputed to have been generous to those he knew who needed aid. In fact, he was a swashbuckler of the first order, dressed like a dandy and loved being called Captain. After a successful robbery, he would traipse around Bath or Bristol, dressed in a purple coat with fawn-coloured waistcoat and knee breeches, with rings on fingers, while his hat was laced with gold. His shoe buckles were of gold and his buttons silver gilt, and he wore white silk stockings. He paid frequent visits to the Ship Inn at Milk Street, Bristol, where he met Bolter and Caldwell, other highwaymen. In his confession, he stated that a number of the watches he stole were buried in a deep hole under Coldwell's cellar. He loved the ladies and was very taken with a sister of Coldwell's wife. The authorities had no proof that William was working with Bolter and Caldwell, but unfortunately he did have an associate who gave information to the police, which led to his arrest. Straight after his last great job, which was an unsuccessful attempt to rob a bank in Stroud. William's first recorded job was an attack on a Dorsetshire grazier named Geoffrey, who was returning from Wayhill Fair. The unsuspecting grazier was riding leisurely along the highway on the Shaftesbury side of Salisbury when the highwayman, who had been waiting, rode out, knocked him off his horse and speedily took £500 in banknotes and £37 in money. 
The unfortunate Gradier pathetically wished he'd left his money in the bank in Salisbury that day. A reward for £60 was offered for the arrest and conviction of the thief, but he got clear away. During the same week, Mrs Turner of Upton Scudamore, while returning from Warminster to Westbury, was stopped in a lane by a finely dressed highwayman. The highwayman, bowing low, requested that the lady give him her money, which she did to the amount of £45. The thief then remarked that it was a fine morning, bowed respectfully and rode away. There were several people working in a nearby field who watched the proceedings, afterwards explaining that from the polite manner of the robber, they thought the lady and him were acquaintances, so they didn't bother to interfere. What really made William famous was when he held up the Chippenham Mail on the 2nd of February, 1782. He managed to plunder during this audacious deed and the officers of the law managed to track him down and he was arrested and held in Gloucester Jail and then he managed to escape on the 19th of April. William seems to have been more cautious after this experience in jail and kept out of the clutches of the thief catchers for some time. He did, however, commit numerous robberies. During a highway robbery, he would usually gallop up to a coach and fire pistols through the windows. In most cases, the travellers were so frightened that they instantly surrendered their money and watches. It is said that Bolter really feared the blunderbuss, which the guards of coaches were provided with, but William wasn't as bothered by those clumsy and ineffectual weapons. One of his failed crimes was when he attacked a Trowbridge coach in Marlborough Forest, and the guard in the rear woke up and fired his blunderbuss at him. He also failed in an attack on a vehicle near Stockbridge, as the passengers, which were composed of several military officers carrying a large sum of money, put up a very good fight. The highwayman fired through both windows of the vehicle and promptly disappeared. The career of this successful knight of the road came to an early end. He was determined to commit a big heist, a bank robbery, but failed. The venue of his daring scheme was Stroudwater in Gloucestershire, and the plan agreed between William and his accomplice, who we don't actually know, was to force a way into the bank, under the dividing wall. While working at night, they forgot to shade their lights, which were noticed by people who passed at that late hour. The proprietor of the bank was contacted, and with several armed officers, he kept watch inside the bank. At about two o'clock on the following morning, one of the paving stones in the room in which the officers were stationed was seen to move, and soon afterwards it was lifted, and William's accomplice scrambled out of the hold to be promptly apprehended by the officers. William didn't appear, but fled immediately as the sound of voices warned him that the scheme had failed. The captured rogue made a full confession and told the officers where they would most likely find William. The men of the law were quickly in pursuit and tracked William to Cricklade, where they arrested him at his brother's house. It took a long time to find him though, as he was hiding in a secret compartment situated between the wall and tiles of the house. William made a bold dash for freedom, though. 
threw the tiles and jumping into the garden, but there was an officer there keeping watch, so he was captured. This was on the 14th of February, 1783, and he went straight back to Gloucester Jail. In the following August, he was tried at the Assizes at Salisbury for robbing the Chippenham Mail and sentenced to be hung at Fisherton. On the morning arranged for his death, Williams spent some time in prayer with a prison chaplain and a female friend who attended to comfort him. He did, however, admit to knowing Bolter and Caldwell and said that many more watches than had been found were buried in a cellar in Bristol. It is clear that he did not regard the stealing of watches as a breach of the law. He conducted himself jauntily during the ride to the gallows and was well dressed, wearing a white satin knot on his breast and carrying a small bunch of flowers in one hand. At the place of execution, he was cool and collected, critically supervising the adjustment of the rope. He also wished the hangman well in his job. When all was ready, he gave the signal for the cart to move by dropping a handkerchief. The flowers were still firmly grasped in the dead man's hand when the body was taken down. The remains were conveyed to Chippenham and hung with chains and suspended from a gibbet in Green Lane, where they hung until the following October, when they suddenly disappeared, being carried away, supposedly, by certain cricklade men who attended the Chippenham Fair. The good folk in Chippenham district seemed to have experienced great disappointment about the hanging of Pier. A notice was released saying that the event was to take place in Green Lane and there were 10,000 people assembled there and they waited and waited until their patience was exhausted. There is an old Wiltshire ballad, The Lamentation of Country Girl Dairymaid, in family near Chippenham and her lover, the noted pair. The woe-begone damsel name was Mary Waite, and in the verse she tells how morning and night she went to shed her tears on the spot where the gibbet stood. In Mary Waite's eyes, the dead highwayman was a hero, whose deeds were most commendable. The poem goes, For me he dared the dangerous road, My days with goodlier fare to bless. He took but from the miser's hoard, From them whose station needed less. Next to Bolter, William Pear was the greatest of the 18th century Wiltshire highwaymen, and his career was short and colourful. He was only 23 when he was hanged. Not all highway robbers were men. Some of the most famous were women, who often dressed as men. Joan Bracey was the daughter of a wealthy Northamptonshire farmer who committed highway robbery with her common-law partner, Edward Bracey. They were the Bonnie and Clyde of their time. Another was Mary Frith, nicknamed Mull Cutpurse, for the way she relieved travellers of their money. She was an incredible woman, of whom it was said she was more man than the men. She once won a bet by riding from Charing Cross to Shoreditch, dressed as a man. Not only that, but she rode flaunting a banner and blowing a trumpet as well. She appeared on the stage and also worked as a pimp and a fence.
perhaps the most famous, was Catherine Ferris, an English gentlewoman and heiress, who, according to popular legend, was also the Wicked Lady, Lady by day and Highway Robber by night. She terrorised Hertfordshire until she died from gunshot wounds sustained during a robbery. Women highway robbers were also subject to the punishment of death by hanging, if convicted. Joan Bracey was executed in 1685, and Mary Frith only escaped Newgate Gallows by paying a £2,000 bribe. And I've just got enough time to tell you about another highwayman. This one's called William Hand, who also liked to earn his living on the King's Highway. In 1788, he robbed a man at Corsham in Wiltshire of six shillings. He was then transported to Australia the following year on the Neptune as part of the Second Fleet. He was tried in Sydney two years later for stealing corn and ordered to wear an iron around his neck for two years. Five months later, he seems to have bent over backwards to get sent to Norfolk Island, a remote volcanic penal settlement which was just as well, for after two years wearing that iron round his neck, he was bending over backwards anyway. Once upon a time. Boring. It was the best of times. It was the worst. You got that right. What's your problem? We want new stories. Hi, it's Frankie. And Garrett. And we host The Ever-Trending Story, a weekly podcast where we bring to life a fictional story created by our own minds and some of the hottest, craziest trends from the internet. Find us wherever you download podcasts and be sure to join the fun on social media at EverTrendingPod. Back in the day facts. This week's facts are all about Dick Turpin, the most famous highwayman of them all. Although he's most well known as a highwayman, Turpin and his gang mainly broke into farmhouses and stole from those owners. He did a little bit of highway robbery as a pastime. In the end, Dick Turpin's downfall was the fact that he shot a chicken belonging to his landlord. And then when the landlord complained, he threatened to shoot him as well. So he was taken into custody and that's when the authorities made inquiries and found out that he was wanted for many crimes in Lincolnshire. Even at this point he might have gotten away with it, but he sent a letter to his brother requesting him to procure an evidence from London that could give me a character that would go a great way towards my being acquitted. Unfortunately, his brother was too mean to pay the sixpence postage due and so returned the letter to the post office. It was there that Turpin's former schoolmaster, Mr Smith, saw it and recognised the handwriting. He took the letter to the local magistrate and, with his permission, opened it. Despite the fact that it was signed John Palmer, Smith identified the writer as Dick Turpin. So Smith was subsequently dispatched to York to make a positive identification, which he did. And lastly, on the 7th of April, 1739, Dick Turpin rode through the streets of York in an open cart. 
bowing to the crowds. He'd bought himself new shoes and clothes and even hired five mourners for ten shillings each. At York Racecourse, he climbed the ladder to the gibbet and then sat for half an hour chatting to the guards and the executioner. An account in the York Corrent of Turpin's execution notes his brashness even at the end. With undaunted courage, looked about him and after speaking a few words to the topsman, he threw himself off the ladder and expired in about five minutes. Well, I fear that's the end of today's episode. But don't worry, there'll be another one this time next week. I'm afraid there's no one to thank this week because it's the summer holidays and a lot of people are away. But I have some amazing stories lined up for future episodes, so those regular voices will be back soon. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.